You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Amen. Thank you, Alex. Church family, good to see you this morning. Glad you're with us. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. I'm grateful you're with us. I'd love to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 8 this morning. Um, And uh, wow, man, we have had a full morning and we are... Only a few seats left in here. We had overflow here this, at the 9 a.m. And so, uh, man, a lot going on. That's good, good problem. But just uh, would love to, uh, for your prayers this weekend as our elders this next week pull away for a retreat, as we do each and every year to spend some time uh, in prayer over our church and, uh, and uh, hearing from the Lord and prioritizing, again, what he wants for Northway Church. And uh, We know at the end of the day, it's about making disciples. It's about bringing him the most glory by making disciples. That's our mission statement. That's what we're after. But there are a lot of moving parts. Do we need to be uh, planting more churches right now, which our hope and and heart is for, more east sides that need to go out and uh, uh, decisions on our own worship center, a lot of those things that are in there. But the priority is making disciples. And uh, so I love your prayers to that end. Uh, as we head out this this week. And in saying that, that's what we're talking about today, right? We're talking about making disciples. If you're just joining us, we're in a series right now um, called Seven Marks of a Disciple. And we're investigating what what does it mean to be a fully fully devoted follower of Jesus, to be a true disciple of Jesus? A word, and think about it, that word is used, uh, as I mentioned before, well over 200 times in the New Testament, the word disciple. The word Christian's only used about three our identity as a disciple, far more than anything else of any other term that we put, what does that mean? And in this series, what we're seeking to do is hear from Jesus himself through his own words. When Jesus says, if you do this, then you are my disciples. And if you are unwilling, then you cannot be my disciple. And so we're looking through that lens. And what we've seen so far, we've covered uh, four uh, marks thus far that we've seen from Jesus's own lips. One of those is is loving Jesus, that one of the key marks of a disciple is our love for Jesus, that uh, we love him with a supreme and incomparable love that rivals any other love. And the reason that we prioritize our love for Jesus is out of the way in which he has loved us. And that should mark us as followers of him. Second mark that we looked at was that of abiding in his word, uh, that a true follower of Jesus is one who is sown into his word, who who roots deeply, sinks deeply into the vine that is Jesus Christ. And we would allow his word, his voice, as we have it contained in scripture, to be the governing voice over our life. That this voice we submit to more than any other voice that's in our life. This is the authority, uh, authoritative word in our lives. And we abide in it. We sink deeply in it. And as doing so, the Holy Spirit bears much fruit in us. Um, and then we looked uh, thirdly, and the, the, the third mark and really the, the fourth mark and the fifth mark we're going to look at today are all contained in one verse. And it's here in Mark chapter 8, where we saw these next few verses, where Jesus is up in northern Israel and he pulls his disciples together and he pulls the whole crowd that was around him. And he's going to clarify again what a disciple is when he says in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, if anyone wants to come after me, Let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. And we've looked at the first two in there already. Deny ourselves. 
that we can't begin to follow Jesus unless we first unfollow us. We can't be the center of our lives. Jesus Christ has to be. We do not ask Jesus to orbit around us. We have all of our life orbit around him and his will over our will. And we deny ourselves. The way that we do that is we go through the cross. We are reconciled daily to Jesus Christ through his work on the cross. He came and gave his life on the cross once and for all for us for the forgiveness of our sins, um, to give us his righteousness that is received by faith in his work on the cross. And that by identifying him with the cross, our old self has been crucified so that through his resurrection, the new self can be born. And and this is what Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That old me is buried six feet under with Jesus. The new me has been raised to walk with Jesus in the newness of life. And so that old me is gone. And every single day, I am reckon, I'm reminding myself of what Jesus has done once and for all for me. And every single day, I'm recalibrating my life to live under the shadow of the cross and the hope of the resurrection. But then what comes after that is this phrase when Jesus says, and follow me. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. The idea of one of the true marks of a Christian, true marks of a disciple is one who follows Jesus. And that's interesting. And I want you to see the words that are used here. It almost sounds redundant. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him follow me. This sounds redundant, but what you have to understand is those are two different phrases used in two different ways, both around the idea of first century discipleship that any Jew in the first century listening to these words knew what Jesus was talking about. And this followed in rabbinic uh, rabbinic fashion. The idea of come after me, that is the call to discipleship. The phrase follow me is the path for discipleship. The call to discipleship has come after me. Literally, it's a phrase that means to arrive from one place to another, to get from point A to point B. It's about destination. Follow me is the pathway of discipleship. It literally means to join somebody on a road. The root word in follow me has the word path or road. It's the idea of me walking in somebody's footsteps. And so in other words, what Jesus is saying in this, if you want to get where I am going, you're going to have to walk where I am walking. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, this language, again, would have been understood in the first century far easier than it is in the 21st. Let me let me just briefly give you a little bit of background on what discipleship looked like in the first century. And it started with schooling at a young age for every Jewish boy and every Jewish girl. And uh, there, were, there were levels of schooling that you would do. We, maybe today we call them synagogue schools, uh, instead of Sunday school, synagogue schools you'd go to um, and where you would learn. And the first school was called uh, Bet Sefer. Bet Sefer. In, in Israel, when you say Beth, uh, we say Beth, it's pronounced like Beit. Uh, Beit Sefer. And uh, means the house of books. And every child that was age around five through 12. So think elementary school, kindergarten, fifth grade, sixth grade, somewhere in there. 
you would begin in Bet Sefer, and a traveling rabbi known as a Hazan would come to your area and would teach and would work your way through over those years from five to 12 through um, the first five books of the Bible, um, Genesis and all the way through uh, to Deuteronomy. You would get all the way through the first five books of the Bible and you would memorize them. You didn't have bound text handed out to every kid like we have now, three, four at your house, couple at the office. It was oral tradition for most of it, learning and reciting the Torah as the scrolls were read and they would have ways to help you learn these books. And this is still happening today in Orthodox Jewish culture. Even this past summer, when we took a Northway trip to Israel, while we were at the Western Wall, one of these classes was graduating. Look at this picture. One of these classes was graduating, these young boys here, who had just finished memorizing the book of Numbers. How many of y'all had that in your scripture memory this week? Anybody? Anybody cranking out Numbers, the whole book? And what they do is they sing. They, they learn it through song. And the traveling Hazans and the rabbis that would come who would teach, they're giving them cadences and they're learning the scriptures and they're, they're memorizing it, bringing it to heart. That's what they're doing. And every young boy and girl would do this from ages five to 12. They'd memorize the Torah. And that would culminate, by the way, with um, girls at age 12 celebrating their bar mitzvah and 13 boys uh, uh, celebrating their bar mitzvah. And that would end this school. Girls at this point were done in the first century and they're going to stay home with mom and they're going to uh, help mom with what she's working on both in the house and the fields around. And then for the boys, most of the boys, if they didn't excel during this first level of schooling, they would be done as well and they would go home and they would learn their father's trade. So whatever dad's doing uh, for his vocation, son's going to go learn the same thing. The boys that excelled in Bet Sefer, they would move on to the second level of schooling, which is called Bet Midrash. Now, it sounds like something you need an ointment for, condition, that's not it. It literally means house of learning or house of study. And this was about age 13 all the way to 18. So think middle school, high school here. And you would study the prophets and the writings the rest of your Old Testament, as well as you would study the Talmud, which is the rabbinic interpretations of uh, the scriptures. And so Beth Midrash, um, these boys would do all the way up until about 18. And when that was done, again, the vast majority of those boys would go back home and they would learn the trades of their father. Everybody's ultimately learning the trades of their parents, but this would be it. This is what you're going to do at the end. Unless you excelled, the best of the best in Bet Midrash would move on then to become what are known as the Talmudim. And the Talmudim is the Hebrew word for disciples. And what you would do is as you have gleaned from these various rabbis, you would find your favorite rabbi. The one that you not only wanted to learn from, the one that you wanted to just be exactly like. And you would go pursue that rabbi and ask to follow that rabbi. And you would, uh, and e even so, I mean, very in the first century, there were different rabbis. Remember that people had different schools in. 
Uh, even in the marriage debate in Matthew's account, uh, there was two camps were holding to the issue of divorce. One was under the rabbi of Gamaliel and the other one is the rabbi Hillel. And he had different camps because people would follow different rabbis. So they wanted to be like them. They liked how they taught and they wanted to learn how they, and the deal was this though. You didn't just sit under a rabbi to learn, even though the word Talmudim literally means learner, or as it's translated in Greek would be learner. The, the idea wasn't just absorbing information. It was learning so that you could be just like that rabbi. You would imitate that rabbi in every way possible. When the rabbi would be walking and there would be some disciples, it was like a mother duck in little ducklings. And they would literally walk in his footsteps to be just like him. They would mimic his mannerisms. They would mimic his teaching style. They would mimic his dress. Everything about that rabbi, they wanted to be just like that rabbi to embody him. That was the idea of the Talmudim. And you would do that from about age 18 all the way until about age 30. And after having spent a dozen years or so under that rabbi, then you were then commissioned to be rabbi yourself, which means master. You now had the authority and the mantle placed on you to go teach others who would follow you. And that was commonplace all throughout the first century. And when you understand that, when you understand the idea of tradesmen and making cuts and progressing up and those who didn't, what does that bring to mind when you think about Jesus? Who were the disciples that he called? What were they always characterized by? Their trades. These were men most likely who did not make the cut. They were fishermen, tax collectors, zealots. There's only one, one, Jew, or one disciple who wasn't from Galilee. That was Judas down south. Only one disciple who may have had royal bloodline, Bartholomew. Outside of that, they were all tradesmen, predominantly from the Galilee area. That's why later when Peter stands up to preach or, or when they encounter the disciples uh, proclaiming the, the gospel of the kingdom, many of the Pharisees would go, are these not Galileans? That's their way of going, are these guys not like the ones that didn't make the cut? How are they so intelligent with the scriptures? It's because they've been hanging around Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, how does that make you feel, by the way? That who Jesus is after, who Jesus is calling, aren't the best of the best. It's a bunch of nobodies. A bunch of nobodies who are gonna follow the somebody. And notice, whereas in Jewish culture, you would go pursue the rabbi, who's pursuing who here? Jesus is coming after them. He's inviting them in. This is a beautiful picture of discipleship. And Jesus, every time that he encounters them on the shores of the Galilee, he says, follow me. He's using rabbinic language. If you wanna come after me, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I'll transform your life. And Jesus is inviting us into that. That's the ultimate goal, by the way, of following the Messiah as our rabbi, as our ultimate savior whom we're chasing after, who's invited us in to follow him. He's inviting us into the newness of life, to trade the old life. That's what the crucifixion we saw last week is, so that you can come up out of that grave anew in him. And the purpose the purpose of following him is that we wouldn't just learn from Jesus. We wouldn't just sit in rooms like this and absorb information, take good notes, and then go on with our life. We would actually sit under the counsel of Jesus so that we would look like him. We would imitate him in every way. 
That, that's what we're doing. Ultimately, that's what Paul said in Romans 8. Remember Romans 8, 28? All things work together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we love quoting that and putting that on Hallmark cards. But what is the purpose that we have been called to? It's the next verse, 29. Be called to be conformed to the image of the Son. This is why we are in Christ to become like Christ, to be conformed to his image by the Spirit's power over time as we submit to his word, as we deny ourselves, as we love him with a chief most love, he turns us into the image of the son over time. And one day that image won't be in part, it'll be in full. Like this is the beauty in what Jesus invites us into. It's not just new life, but it's the fullness of life. We talked about this last week. The transfer from sin country into Graceland gives us new residence adoption, redemption, forgiveness of sin, yes, in the fullness of joy of getting to experience a taste of his kingdom now, the kingdom that one day will come in full. Like we get to live that kingdom kind of life with him right now. It's the beauty of following Jesus. But we have to understand, and here's kind of the context we're gonna be in today. There are costs involved that we need to be aware of if we're really going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus in order to become like him. Think about this. Jesus said in John 15, verses 18 through 21, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. A Talmudim is not greater than his rabbi. If they persecuted me, they are going to persecute you. If they kept my word, then they're going to keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter 2. He said it this way, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow his steps. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're being invited into the greatest life that you could ever experience, the life of your creator and savior, who longs to redeem you and give you the newness of life that can never be taken away from you. But if you're gonna follow your savior, if you're gonna walk in his footsteps, you need to know that the path that he took for the joy that was set before him was a path of suffering. And it's a path of opposition and a path of persecution and a path of shame that was endured for the joy that was set before him. And if we're gonna follow after Jesus, the same is coming for us. Now, I'm going to be honest with you and say, I don't know that we really know really how to taste this meaning in our Western American context, like our brothers and sisters in other countries are experiencing right now. But the reality is still the same. If you're going to follow after me for the joy that is set before me, you need to understand the cost you're going to incur along the way. And if you are, un are unwilling to accept those costs, then you cannot follow me. 
Now, Jesus doesn't describe here in Mark 8 the kind of cost he's specifically talking about, but in Luke chapter 9, he does. So flip over to Luke chapter 9 there to your right. Luke 9 is the exact same context, just being recorded from Luke's vantage point, of the same conversation that we've been seeing. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, Jesus says the same three things. If anyone wants to come after me, you got to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. In verse 51, Jesus says, or, or at least Luke tells us, Jesus is turning his face towards Jerusalem now. He is about to head down that path that will lead to his execution in Jerusalem. And he literally is going to start making his journey down the road, heading south to Jerusalem, going from village to village on his way. And at the end of Luke 9, starting in verse uh, 57, Luke uh, is going to show us that Jesus is going to encounter three different individuals. There's a whole crew following him. It's not just the twelve. The disciples are really a lot more than just the 12. There was the inner 12, but there's hundreds of folks that are following Jesus on this path. And Jesus is he's heading towards his destiny, which is the cross. He says, if you, if you want to come after me, you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. And here's the path I'm going down. Three people Jesus highlights on this road who are interested in following him. And in highlighting these three people, Jesus is going to show us three unique costs that any one of us are likely going to face if we're going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. The cost of our comfort, the cost of our earthly concerns, and the cost of even our companions. These are three costs that every one of us are assuredly going to face at some point in our life if we are truly going to follow the path that Jesus calls us down. I want you to notice the first cost. We're going to speak to each of these. The cost of our comfort in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, this guy seems innocent enough. Let's be honest. We love this guy. He's not afraid of the crowd. He's ready to jump in right there, stake his claim to Jesus. I'm in, baby. You say, pick up your cross, follow me. Let's go. Where are we going, Jesus? I'm in. And here's the deal, though. I mean, we love this guy. We love having him around. But Jesus, being God, fully omniscient, is able to see right through his emphatic zeal and understand what the motivations are that are driving his allegiance. And what we're going to find, based on Jesus' response, that's met with a caution, is that maybe this guy isn't who we think he is. While he seems impressive with his zeal, the truth is, this guy's got conditions. Yeah, I'm willing to follow you. I love the Jesus who's been healing people, and like curing sickness and raising people from the dead. I love that Jesus I saw in the Galilee walking on water. I want me some of that. I like a lot of these things going on, but I've got conditions. This path that I'm following you, it better land with my personal gain. It better land with my personal comfort. It better land with my advantage happening in this thing. And it better not be anything less. And Jesus, I think, knowing 
what's in, not just this guy, this is all of us, y'all. This is me. This guy's me speaking right here. We all got conditions, whether we're honest enough to admit them or not, of how far we'll go before we'll stop following Jesus. And Jesus knows this, this guy is uh, averse to discomfort. And Jesus says, listen, son, you need to know something. Animals got it better than I do. They at least have a home to go to at night. They've got a pillow to rest their head. I don't. And it's not that uh, Jesus uh, isn't just talking about his day-to-day travels. He is. I mean, Jesus was literally homeless, literally had nowhere to lay his head. But Jesus is using this as an illustration here in the context of discipleship as figurative speech for discomfort. The path to following me is not going to be comfortable. And if you're looking for ease, and if you're looking for self-preservation and comfort, this is not going to be that road. It's going to be hard. Are you prepared for that? Are you willing to accept that in order for the, the prize of following me and enjoying me? Now, we're going to give people names, each one of these folks we're going to see. I'm going to call this one Mr. and Miss Too Hasty right here. Mr. and Miss Too Hasty, because they are quick to jump into the ring without first considering the cost. This is your ultimate youth group student at a camp right here, ready to charge the hill because they've had three days of incredible music and a really passionate motivational speaker and blobbing their friends into the lake and everything's awesome. Jesus is awesome. Let's go. I'm ready to go back home until they get home and everything in collapses on them. And that mountaintop's not there anymore. And in this moment, is Jesus still who he said he was? Does Jesus still mean to me what I claimed he meant? That's where it gets tested. And if we're not careful, we can be Mr. or Miss too hasty. Jumping in to follow Jesus because of misguided motivations. Anybody ever met anybody like that? Loves to jump in without considering the consequences on the back end? Anybody that? That's right here. Um, Absolutely. I mean, it's no different than me grabbing a free T-shirt in the student union at University of North Texas for signing up for a credit card. And so I just, I I didn't think about 85% interest for the rest of my life. I thought about a free T-shirt. I'm in. Let's go. Most of us, if we're not careful, we can, we can be misguided. It's like Simon the magician in the book of Acts who wanted to follow the disciples because they saw the power that was being demonstrated and Simon wanted it. He wanted that power for himself. Baptize me. Give this to me. I, I want this. And remember when Peter confronts him, he goes, may you perish with your silver. This is not what this is about. This is not about what you can gain in terms of your fame and your fortune by following Jesus. If anything, it's gonna cost you earthly fame and fortune in this climate of following Jesus. And so we have to be careful. Now, praise God, because you need to know this. When we follow Jesus, there's not a one of us in this room who've had perfect motivations in following Jesus. I am one of them. Imperfect motivations. You'll never have them this side of heaven. And praise God for God's grace that meets us where we are and does not leave us there, transforms us, changes us by his grace. Over time, uh, smooths out those rough edges and those impure motivations and exchanges them for what is good, true, and beautiful. 
Praise God for that. But that's what Jesus is doing here. There is a point when every one of us are going to have to be confronted with our false motivations. And will we still follow? That's this guy. Now, also doesn't mean here, just so you know, that this means we have to pursue a life of asceticism, that you have to pursue discomfort in order to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus. Like bring it on. And we need to be careful because as much danger as there are with prosperity gospel, there is equal dangers with poverty gospel that all there is is like, I need to become a, a broke college student and then I'm righteous in order to fall in Jesus. I need to live on cinder blocks. It's not what he's talking about right here is emptying yourself of every comfort that's out there. There are many common graces of God that he lavishes upon his children that are good. They just can't be the end in themselves. And they can't be what prevents you from going even further. So you don't have to pursue discomfort, but you can't avoid it. And you surely need to expect it because it is part and parcel with following Jesus. And so this goes back to that third characteristic of denying ourselves to lay down our own rights so that we can follow Jesus unhindered, unhindered. And so the first cost is the cost of comfort. Are you willing to follow Jesus when everything begins to get uncomfortable. If you are unwilling to do that, if your goal in following Jesus is so you can just be hooked up with all the earthly comforts on this side of heaven, then you're not gonna be fit to follow him because those will be pulled out from you in about 10 minutes of following Jesus. Is Jesus enough for you? Is he more precious than any discomfort that may come your way? First cost, first guy. Second one, though, that we'll look at is a verse 59. It's not just the cost of our comfort, but the cost of our earthly concerns. Verse 59, Jesus actually initiates with another guy on the road. He says, hey, follow me. But the guy said to him, Lord, let me, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, man. If I read that, I'm like, gosh, why so harsh? Brother just wants to go bury his dad. What's wrong with that? Is, is, is Jesus anti-family? No, he's not anti-family. First Timothy tells us that if you can't take care of your own family member, you're as good as an unbeliever. Jesus is not anti-family. So why the harsh statement here for a guy that just wants to go bury his dad? Now, we need to understand first, what this guy is talking about, what death was in the first century and funerals were in the first century to understand what this guy's saying. In the 21st century, when a loved one dies for us, what does that process typically look like? Well, if you're doing traditional funeral, um, bodily funeral, then you've probably got about three, four days from the time of death you hand the body over to the mortician. They get the body ready at the funeral home. And then you've got three, four days in your grief to then pull together friends and family. They can travel in from afar, set the, uh, the uh, funeral service, do the burial. It's kind of our process. And if that's what we have in mind here, then we have this picture of this guy that's like, my dad just died. We've got the service at three o'clock. Can you just let me go bury him and then I'll go with you? And Jesus is like, no, let the dead bury the dead. That's not what's happening right here. How did funerals go in the first century? When you had a loved one who died, when did you bury them? Three days later, four days later? No, you buried them the same day. Still happens today in Middle Eastern countries. When someone dies, you bury them the same day. They go on the ground. What happens here and what this guy is doing, traditional Jewish burial, 
is you would bury them that day, just as Jesus was in the tomb, and you would leave them there for a year in order for decomposition to happen. And then you would collect their bones and you would put their bones in a bone box, an ossuary, and you would go transfer it to a more permanent place of burial. More than likely, what's going on here is this guy's dad just died. He wants to wait an entire year before he'll follow Jesus just so he can get the bones and go put them in the more permanent spot. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Now, who is Jesus talking? Who's the dead Jesus is referring to? He's not talking about literal dead. Uh, Last I checked, dead people can't bury dead people. So that can't be literal. He's talking about the spiritually dead. He's talking about those who are not alive to God because they have put off following Christ. It's the spiritually dead who prioritize earthly responsibilities and put the kingdom responsibilities on the back burner. That's what's going on here. Mark Bailey, the guy who wrote the book to follow him, my seminary president at the time who we've patterned this series off of, he would always say about his kids, he's like, kids, if, uh, if I die and you're out on the mission field, I don't want you coming back just to put my bones in the ground. A funeral, uh, a funeral director can do that. I want you not wasting time on a guy whose body's dead, but his spirit's fully alive in the presence of Christ. I want you to stay out there and preach the gospel of the kingdom to those who are spiritually dead before they physically die. And in a sense, this is what Jesus is saying. And it's figurative language towards earthly responsibilities in general. It is Jesus saying you cannot prioritize earthly concerns over spiritual concerns. Spiritual concerns have got to come first. You can't put off the eternal mission of following Jesus for some future hypothetical physical scenario. In other words, as it might play out for us today, you can't, when Jesus invites you to follow him, you can't go, yeah, Jesus, that's great. But first, let me get out of school. Let me just finish getting out of school. Let me get my undergrad, my master's, my PhD, and then I'm yours. Once I can just get through this season, then I'm yours. Or saying, you know what? Let me just wait till my boyfriend or my girlfriend gets right with Jesus. And once they're finally right with you, then to get, then I'm in, I'm in, I'm all in. Or let me just get this aspect. Let me just pay off this debt first. And, and then let me uh, get out of school and buy this house. And then let me get married. Once I'm married, once I get out of this single season, then I'll follow you, Jesus. No, 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 no. That is prioritizing the earthly concerns of the spiritual. The time to follow Jesus is now. His kingdom is now. It leverages all those things for the sake of his glory, the sake of his kingdom purposes. It's now, following Jesus is not tomorrow. It's not down the road. It's not a year from now so I can take care of these earthly things. It's now to follow Jesus. I call these folks here, but first kinds of Christians. I've been it myself. That when Jesus gives us a hundred compelling reasons for all we should follow him, our immediate response is, but first. But first, wait. But first, let me do this. But first, you cannot be a but first follower of Christ. It is seek his kingdom first, Matthew 6, 33. And then all these things will be added unto you. Kingdom first right now. If we call the first person Mr. and Miss too hasty, we're gonna call this person Mr. and Miss too hesitant. 
kind of like Martha. When Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, you've so, there's so many things that you're concerned with right now, but only one thing is necessary. You have all these earthly concerns, but there's a spiritual one that's preeminent right now. Falling Jesus is like one giant hot air balloon that's ready to take off with us having way too many sandbags of excuses holding it down. We'll never be free to fully follow the Lord until we stop making excuses and we start following him. Let me ask you something. Will you whatever be convenient to follow Jesus? Would it ever be perfectly convenient to follow Jesus? Will there ever be a time when all that you need to get done actually gets done and then you can follow him? No, there always be demands upon us. Your life will always be dominated with tasks and deadlines and urgent obligations, but it doesn't matter. We don't have the time to put off following Jesus. Jesus is absolute. All other allegiances are relative. That's the point here. And if you're not ready for that, then you're unfit to be a disciple. If the earthly concerns matter to you more than his kingdom concerns, then you can't follow Jesus. Third cost that we need to consider, final one, verse 61 and following is the cost of our companions. Another person stands up and says, I will follow you, Lord. Oh, but there it is. But first, let me go say farewell to those who are at my home. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You go, why so harsh, Jesus? Surely we're sympathetic to this guy. He's on the road. He's in the village. Jesus is heading south. He just, he's hearing about Jesus. And he's like, dude, I'm in. Let's go. Just let me go home and say goodbye. No, now come with me. Is that what Jesus is saying? Let me just go say goodbye right here. That's not the literal picture that's happening here. First of all, I think this is actually imagery that's being summarized and quoted here from 1 Kings 19. When Elisha is out in a field plowing and Elijah comes and gives him his mantle and says, you're about to follow in my footsteps. And Elisha says, let me go home and say goodbye. And Elijah says, now's the time. Jesus is reciting that right here. And he's using this agricultural language here, this idea of plowing. Because what did you do in first century plowing? You would have your plow, you'd put your hands to it. The straps are attached to a yoke that's over the, the necks of oxen or donkeys right here. And you will hold that as like a steering wheel to go straight as that ox goes straight. You're keeping it in line. But what happens after you've put your hand to the plow and you decide you're gonna look back the whole time? What, what happens to your arms? You ever been driving and you spend a little too long looking over your side, your blind spot? You'll start veering. And Jesus is saying this, and the Greek is, is, is saying it in this way. Once you have already put your hand to the plow of following Jesus, but then present perfect tense, continual tense, you're, you're gonna always just keep doing this, then you're not fit for the kingdom. It's the idea of backwards looking, always looking back at the people that I'm missing out or the life that I'm missing out back here. I'm unable to move forward because I'm too busy looking backwards. And that's one of the dangers that we're going to experience. It's like a young married couple that refuses to leave and cleave from their parents. They'll never be able to start what God has for them in their new covenant if they're always hanging on to mom and dad in the back. There's a leaving and cleaving 
that needs to take place. It's the same, Paul will use this illustration in military language. No soldier who's been enlisted, who's in the midst of the war is concerned with civilian affairs back home. This is my task. This is what's in front of me. And if I'm over there trying to fight a war, well, all the time, just trying to, you know, text and stay back and, hey, what's going on there? And this, that, you're never gonna conquer new ground here. And it's me driving my daughter, dropping her off to school and her wanting to come home every weekend still right now, which I love. But I'm also setting her up for the life that's coming. And as we're driving to school, I use the illustration. I said, sweetheart, we're in the front seat right now and there's this giant front windshield in front of you of what God has. But it's like spending your entire time looking at that tiny rear view mirror, always thinking about what you're missing that you gotta leave. If you're so preoccupied with looking back, you'll never be available to move forward. To follow Jesus, we must go where he goes. We must imitate him. It comes with a fullness of joy that he offers through his death and resurrection for us. But the path is filled with costs that we're going to have to consider. The costs of comfort, the costs of concerns, even the cost of your old companions. My struggle, just to be real with y'all, I've shared it before, is nostalgia. I'm 47 years old and aging evermore. And the older I get, I find myself just looking back at simpler days, missing the stages of my kids when they were little, missing you know, the life that I had when I was in this season of my life or this season of my life. And, and I'm talking in past tense quite a bit if I don't catch my, if I don't guard myself. I'm turning into my parents. That's what's really scary. <laughs> but what that breeds, if I'm not careful, is discontentment. I, I'm so wanting to recapture what was that I have no faith and trust in the Lord for what is to come. If you're gonna follow Jesus, it's gotta be faith first. Put your hands to the plow and trust him so that you can walk through whatever may come. Um, man, this is, this is the deal. We are every one of these people. I, I am Mr. Too Hasty, I'm Mr. Too Hesitant, and I'm the third one, the Mr. or Miss Too Homesick. And I've been every one of them, and you're every one of them if we're not careful. But what I love is that God's grace is available to meet us at every step of the way, if we'll just trust him. So how are we doing in this area, y'all? Following Jesus. Are you imitating him? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to conform you to the image of his son? If not, why not? This is what we need to wrestle with this week. Again, what are those barriers that are preventing us from moving forward, walking where he walks, knowing that is gonna involve persecution, and hostility, but it's worth it because of who he is and what we have in him and the joy that is set before us. Let's spend some time this week thinking through what it means for you, what it means for me to follow Jesus. Amen. Here's what we've seen so far. A true follower of Christ is one who loves Jesus, who abides in his word, who's able to deny himself, pick up his or her cross and follow him. Next week, we're going to look at the role that our possessions play in marking us as a disciple. So we'll see you in two weeks, basically, right? No, come back next week. Don't dodge next week. Lean in, all right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder. 
that you have never called us to give up that which is lesser or that which is greater for something that is lesser. You are the great prize. Oh God, may you be more precious to us than anything else. May you be more worthy of whatever it is that may cost us, whether it be our comforts, our earthly concerns, or even our companions in days of old. Father, help us to believe that nothing is more precious than you. Nothing is more worthy of our lives than following Jesus. And so give us the boldness and the courage to do so with a sobriety of consideration of what it may cost us. For your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.